Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 24th of January 2016. Today I'll be touching on a few subjects, but I also want to do the last one, hopefully the last one until the big one <laughs> comes up to do with the bankers and the bail-ins, etc. So that'll be part three of the last two weeks. This is the third part. You know, it's quite the hype nowadays when you get any kind of uh, seasonal weather. I noticed years ago when they brought out the weather channel, I thought, well, who's going to be watching weather 24 hours a day? And suddenly, though, you were being told that uh, it was going to rain. It's going to rain. Here's what to wear. Like you're talking to children. If it's going to rain today, and you bring an umbrella with you, and you've got a little, you know, this cheap uh, plastic disposable raincoats to sell today. You don't sell your proper ones uh, that rip as soon as you lift your arm. And uh, things like that. Like talking to children as you're getting trained to see the weather in a new, different light, you see. That was all part of the big strategy to terrify public about the weather. And then they had reports of MIT and all these different organizations are always studying us and studying us and so on. Had done reports on how short-term memory is for most people. Most memory is short-term. They can't remember from one winter to the next what the weather was like, or even one summer sometimes. They travel from their climate-controlled apartments or houses to into their climate-controlled car, to the climate-controlled work, if they've still got any left to go to, and they think it's all quite, you know, this is the natural way. So they get a little bit of rain or whatever, and suddenly on the weather station, Oh, everything was going to be a disaster. Could be a foot of rain, etc. A little drizzle, uh, things like that. As you start, and we're getting trained to be fearful in preparation for climate change. You see, climate change. The climate has always been changing from the beginning of this planet, no doubt. And uh, there's been ice ages. In between the ice ages, you get melting ages. You see, it melts. Then go back in an ice age again, things like that, over long periods of time. But, of course, people today are always thinking in the now. Your life is very short. It's really a blip, isn't it, your life, when you think about it. And the older you get, in fact, it seems to speed up even more. Part of it is because nothing is exciting. You've seen it all before, all the cons, the rackets, and so on bank crashes and politicians that lie through their teeth, reading scripts that are written by professional spin merchants for the guys that end up reading them. So I always talk about that old story about the guy, he was supposed to be the oldest guy they thought at the time in the world, at least in North in Americas, and he was a Mexican, about 115, and he committed suicide. And in his note that he left, he was just bored about the sameness of everything. Different regimes come and go, parties come and go, and so on. And the public never benefit. They're always ripped off by banks and tyrants and everything else. It's just incessant. And the lies that are told with each new politician are always disclosed when they get voted out of office. And you, you vote another bunch of liars and basically opportunists. Uh, that's the way of, of the system, basically. So, we have short-term memories, you see. And uh, it's fantastic because people believe hype, 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 
before they'll believe their own common sense and what they've observed in their own lives. The problem is most folk are not observing things for themselves. Forget the news about, you know, what's happening across the world and the wars. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing. It's out of your hands. You, you never just say in the first place. You never get told the truth about why the wars are happening. You get spin propaganda. And uh, all you can really do is, is manage the little parts of your life that you can manage for yourself. That's the bottom line. Some folk are always trying to go back to some kind of golden age. It's generally fictitious. You can get the country back, or even in Canada, there's folk who oh, it was nice back in 1950 or something like that. But they forget that even back then, it was the first time really in its history that the average person, common person, the working person, could afford for the first time a house because of all the factories that sprung up during World War II. You see, because Canada financed using tax money the big munitions factories, all different factories, etc. The states did the same, Britain did the same, and after the war, they were turned into other construction for making everything from chainsaws to everything you, you can imagine, basically. So, for the first time, the person had a the big war was over, you know, and the, their currencies hadn't shrunk and shrunk and shrunk with in their spending power, basically. Folk could live sometimes uh, back then for 20 bucks a week. That was a good wage. And you still pay off a mortgage on it as well. The houses back in Toronto, it's astonishing enough, uh, were, that they're selling now for, for about, <laughs> way overpriced of naturally, as they always do it. They were selling for $5,000 new. Brand new. Brick houses. But it didn't last that long, because come, come the 70s, through all the different treaties it signed and so on, and getting ready for the big push of exporting all your factories to China. But they didn't last long because, or it didn't last long, because you had, again, governments working behind the scenes for the global society to come into being. Old agenda and especially the British Commonwealth countries, because London led the whole agenda for a hundred years already, and they wanted this big world system under a global governance. They call it now governance, which is government system. But anyway, they talked about all the things they could were going to do, how wonderful it would be, jobs, jobs, jobs. And then, of course, in the 70s, 1970s, uh, that's when they started to... Um, Signed different agreements and so on for trade, international trade, little free trade agreements. And then came the big one uh, before even, I think, Trudeau, well, it's even get up working under, under the, in the works. These things don't come out of the blue. It takes years of preparation for them. Uh, when Pierre Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, uh, got in, he socialized the country right away. Left a massive debt at the end of it, of course. That's what comes with socialism. Socialism's great when you're spending other people's money. It's all gone. But anyway, you, you, you find that uh, these eventually signed the, the free trade agreement. It was the first one, big one. And then the North America free trade agreement. And now we've had all the other free trade agreements since. And even with the North American free trade agreement, the developed countries, as they call it, it's always the same with all these agreements. 
pay for the, the setting up of the infrastructure for factories and work in other countries that are up and, up and coming, emerging economies, we call them. And then your own big tycoons invest abroad instead of investing in your own country. And they'll often ship their own factories across. You pay for that. That's part of the deal for them shipping across to these countries. And for about the first 15 years, I believe it is, that the companies that have set up abroad and left your country uh, can claim uh, tax-free status and money from your government that they just left, basically, your country, for any losses or projected losses they claim has been incurred because of the setting up time period, etc. With the North American Free Trade Agreement, immediately, because all the big boys were told, you know, and the public are never told to the, it's done, they've been preparing for years to move their stuff down to the Mexican border, just across the border. Big, uh, they actually called it some fancy name, of course, this massive line, this, this band across uh, North Mexico where the factories were all set up. They used to be in Canada and a lot in the States as well. And within the, all these treatises signed on free trade, it's written into them. They can then take that conglomeration of countries that signed it and you expand that treaty to, into new treaties like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and all the rest of it. But the thing is, again, it's, it's the same thing. Every emerging nation, you still got China down as an emerging nation. And we still subsidize things over in China for the first world, from the first world countries, etc., uh, etc. Et anyway, now you get the whole Pacific region to do as well. But anyway, uh, we've been done in, basically, into a service economy. And even Britain said years ago, before they created this con of a European Union run by the kind of secretive uh, commission at the top that are unelected by the public, uh, that um, they would do the same with North America as well. And the private club, the CFR, came out and admitted, and they're part of the Royal Institute of International Affairs private club again, uh, that they drafted up the European Union agreement uh, and, and handed it to the governments to sign. Same with the North American agreement as well. They came out on television in Canada in 2005 and admitted openly under their own banner of the Council on Foreign Relations that they had drafted it up for the amalgamation of the Americas. So we're run by one private club with different specialized branches and in different parts of the world, all heading towards the same kind of thing. So anyway, it's ongoing. It's awfully boring, of course. But it's good to know at least what's really happening in the world because you have some sanity. You're not confused like most folk. You get bits and bites of dribble, basically, uh, given to them by uh, what's called news today because news is meant to keep you feeling happy and secure when the world is not happy at all for the general population and it's certainly not secure. But getting back to the weather thing, everything's a crisis now, isn't it? Because we're causing, all, we're, you actually are causing all the problems in the climate, apparently. And you're going to pay through the noses. And I've done lots of talks, and I won't reiterate all that tonight. But what I'm going to talk about is this nonsense with the big storm in the States. It's winter, folks. It's winter. 
And getting back to the short-term memory, it's not the first time this has happened. When I was really small in Britain, I can remember they showed on TV Canada sending massive snowplows down to Buffalo, New York, and different areas from Canada to deal with their occasional heavy, heavy uh, blizzards and snows that they get down there. Very occasionally they get it. And they're not prepared for it, of course. But it's always been like that. And if it doesn't happen in your lifetime, it only happens a couple of times in your lifetime, you'll think, well, how odd. No, it's not odd. That's the way it goes. Whether it's not clockwork, it certainly isn't clockwork. You get good summers, you get wet summers, you get this and that. But now, of course, you do have the geoengineering it's admitted to now. It's been going on since, steadily since 1998, steadily, like an earnest on massive scales. And the weather pretty well is managed, isn't it? So you can't even, to an extent, it is anthropogenic global warming or climate change, man-made climate change, because scientists are behind it all, and there's definitely a massive air force involved in it too, never mind the massive chemical companies that are producing all the stuff that they're spraying. But that's a different story again. I'm going to put some articles up tonight to do with different blizzards that have been recorded before. There was lots of them in the States in the 1800s, but even in 1922, this is 100 were killed, 133 injured during the tragic blizzard of 1922 when the flat roof, roof of the Knickerbocker Theatre collapsed during the showing of a silent film. I wonder if that was the one with Charlie Chapman to do the gold rush, where he's up on top of a mountain and all the snow and a little shack, and he's so starving he has to eat his boot. That'd be a climax. There's special effects for you that the roof fell in, right? Now, a lot of these the roofs are flat, and they're not meant to take any weight on top at all. At all, folks. Built on the cheap, you see. So I'll put that one up. And then um, it talks about... Uh, oh, the silent film they were watching was Get Rich Quick. Ha, 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 ha. It says here, and it killed 98 people and injured 133. Get rich quick. That was before the Great Depression, the last Great Depression, not the present one. And uh, the Great Blizzard of 1899. That was February 11th to the 13th, 1899. It's called the Great Blizzard of, of that year. It paralyzed much of the eastern United States, including southern states, all the way down to Florida, D.C., experienced record cold temperatures with thermometers registering at minus 15 degrees, which is a breeze for me in Canada because it's, it's much lower. I've had, I've had 30, minus 35 uh, already uh, this year and probably hit the 40s, no doubt, in February. Minus 40s. President's Day Snowstorm 1979. Uh, says, uh, caught D.C. by surprise. Always crashes them by surprise, eh? Uh, since forecasters predicted that the storm would bypass the city, it caused the Smithsonian Museums to close for two days in a row, something that hadn't happened in 50 years. So it's happened before even then. Uh, farmers who were in D.C. to protest agricultural policy used their tractors to help plough the streets and get emergency personnel to hospital. And uh, then it's got even up the, the more recent ones too. Uh, Snowmageddon. I love the names to give it now. It's all terrifying things. Uh, it's called by President Barack Obama. The 2010 blizzard practically shut down D.C. 
and left thousands without power. The entire mall was covered in deep snow, leaving 16 rows of soldiers' names braided in snow at the Vietnam uh, Veterans Memorial. In the blizzard of 1996, there's another one too, it dumped 12 inches of snow in D.C. in 24 hours. To them, it's a crisis down there. There's nothing up here. <laughs> Storm was so bad that President Bill Clinton had to shut down the federal government for nearly a week. And... Um, Total property damage and so on went on to about $600 million to $3 billion. It's quite different, say. I mean, what, what was it? $600 million to $3 billion? I wonder who did that accounting. And uh, so it's got different years and so on of what's happened, etc., etc. The megalopolitan blizzard. <laughs> 1983. Uh, left some areas of northwest Montgomery and Frederick counties with the greatest amount of snow ever recorded in those areas, even more than that recorded during the infamous Knickerbocker storm of 1922. It crippled the region, closing the area's three major airports and shutting down the metro. And, and, and other ones too, snow apocalypse, etc., etc. All these different names to give them. And never mind the present one too, which is Jonas, eh? Jonas. I thought about Jonas too. It's really similar to Jonah. It's a whale of a storm, you see. And uh, but Jonas, Jonas, apparently means dove for peaceful being, but also means a destroyer. <laughs> uh, and he or he who oppresses are a gift from God. So God can't lose in any way. Anyway, you look at it, and, um, and that's the way it goes. Of course, with all this kind of stuff. But as I say, it's not new at all. And then this this one here, the storm of a generation. Jonas leaves ten dead, eight and a half thousand flights axed, hundreds of cars stranded overnight, two foot of snow in D.C., and ten inches in Manhattan, as eighty-five million are told to stay inside. Now, as I say, it is winter. It is winter, folks. And this comes every so often, you see. Uh, it's not new. And uh, it's a massive emergency because they're not used to it. If it happened more frequently, they'd have to have snow plows everywhere and all the rest of it and ways to deal with it. But they're not, they're not uh, prepared for it at all. Because really, governments live on hope. You know? And they tell you hope as well. And that's what they have on their, an American dollar bill. And in, in God we trust. It's the only trust you got because there's nothing else backing anything. And you're hoping that nothing's going to happen, you see. But it's going to happen. It's the history of uh, of the weather. But this article is touched by the storm of a generation, at least ten dead. But the thing is, you find that the, the the folk who are dying are pretty well all car smashes. Because again, the folk, when they get it, they're not used to it. Uh, they drive like they've always done uh, during the summers and nice weathers. Uh, and then they hit, suddenly it's snowing and they drive the same way. I've seen it here in Canada. I used to go down when I lived in Toronto for a little while, every, because uh, when it's going to be the first snow of the winter, and there's a little cafe, a little cafeteria, get a coffee there, right on the corner of uh, a road, and another road that came onto it. Right? So you got a view from the front and the side of the two roads, you see. And you'd always see, it was, it was the most entertaining thing you'd watch. The first snow, 
They come flying along there, slam the brakes on at the stop sign, and they couldn't stop. And they'd go skidding across the street into the, the gardens of the houses uh, uh, that were there, or else they'd have a bump with a car that was coming along the road. And I'm telling you, sometimes it was ten a night. And that was just a little side street. It wasn't a big major road, you see. So you can imagine what it was like all over the place. Like they have to relearn it again. And these folk were brought up in this kind of climate. But it seems to take an amazing adjustment period for them to remember, oh yeah, it's snow, yeah. And underneath the snow, you often get a kind of black ice sort of form. Black ice you can't really see until you step out your vehicle and try to slide your your, your feet across the ground. And by God, it's slippy all right. It's a very thin, 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 thin layer. It's not like a sheet of, of ice, you see. But then, this happens every year. Amazing entertainment, though, it was. Amazing entertainment. And luckily, most accidents are, are generally aren't, aren't too severe. It's mainly vehicle damage or property damage as you're going through gardens and things. But uh, that's what happens every year. So when you look at all these articles to do with uh, how many folk have been killed, it's, it's generally that. It's all vehicles. Even though they've been warned and the whole bit, they still go out and drive the same way. Uh, and this is the beauty of this one here, really, they get a choice to stay home. It's a weekend thing. Most of them have got a choice. But they want to carry on as usual and get somewhere, go shopping on Saturday, or whatever it happens to be. Then you'll always get the folk who go out to shovel the snow. And what happens is the, 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 the sudden temperature for walking out inside to outside there but some people constricts the blood vessels and they get a heart attack. Other folk, and this is a big thing too, you really do overheat when you're shoveling snow. If you're really bundled up and you've got to start unpeeling the stuff that you're wearing as you go along. Overheating will really make you pass out as well. Anyway, that's that's the way it is, folks, and um what can you do? What can you what can you honestly do? You can't tell people what to do if there's no common sense. But again, folk live on hope. I hope I get home okay. I'll risk it. I'll risk going and getting that little plastic gadget from wherever. And um, there you go. But again, there's another article too to do with how, how bad it's going to be. It's almost how bad it's going to be. The snowfall rates of one to three inches an hour, that's nothing for me. Because it's winter. So I'll put these articles up tonight, but then I want to go into some, again, back to what's really happening, the big one that's going to affect us all, planned this way, of course. Uh, they knew back in the last crash it was coming. There was no regulation. All the regulatory authorities had been pulled off them way back in the days of Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, I think. Let them do what they want, the market will adjust itself, you know. No oversight committees, nothing. And of course the bankers, you know, just went to town, gave themselves billions in bonuses, and, and uh, you get the massive crash. The fraudulent mortgage scam is to create bubbles and kept up and buying stacks of mortgages from one bank to the next, passing them around, upping the prices until it all collapsed. Now, year in review, 
legislation and guidance for financial institutions in 2015. And, and remember, if I mentioned Canada or other states, it's implemented worldwide through the IMF and the Bank for International Settlements. They came up with the idea of uh, bail-ins, where they scalp you, basically, if you put your money in the bank. But anyway, it says financial institutions in Canada witnessed yet another year of significant growth. That sounds wonderful. Isn't it? Then it says in legislation, <laughs> not in money and profits, and regulatory guidance impacting their operations while the financial marketplace is continuing to adapt to the impacts of fintech and emerging use of innovative technologies in delivering financial services. They don't want anybody... Uh, that you, if you basically put money in the bank, you can't get a teller. So I think that's where they want to go with it all, make it all cashless, etc. And this is innovative technologies in delivering financial services. The key initiatives introduced or implemented in 2015, and I've talked about them in the past, the stuff isn't widely publicized to the public, so are outlined in our annual regulatory overview. And it's a whole bunch of things here. Prudential guidance from the OSFI, amendments to federal financial institutions legislation, consumer protection, that's to do your bailouts and bail-ins, uh, anti-money laundering and sanctions, federal regulation of payment service providers, and emergency lending assistance by banks, or the bank, by the Bank of Canada, the Central Bank, which isn't really a bank as such, really. So the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions back in 2015 uh, published a new draft guideline, E21. That's for those who want to know what it is, Operation Risk Management, for comments. So it was put up for comment to the big, big, big corporations and so on. And it aims to provide a comprehensive view of operational risk management and related OSFI guidance across all federally regulated financial institutions other than the branch operations of foreign banks and foreign insurance companies and fills what OSFI perceives to be a gap in existing guidance. It's expected to establish and maintain an enterprise-wide framework of operational risk management controls consistent with four guiding principles that are set out in the draft guideline. So I'll put this up tonight. It's long, it's, for, it's boring actually, but, and, but you have to know this stuff, or at least have it there, uh, if, if you're, you, you wonder what's really happening in your institutions as they all prepare for this massive depression, which is obviously, uh, it's really here, we're, we're just paddling right now in a service economy, because all your main uh, manufacturing is elsewhere. It's got the revisions to it as well, the policy papers, all the different links from the governments and so on. You can download it if you're really interested in finding what's happening. Most folk don't even know this has all been done. I'm telling you, there's even folk in banks that don't know, haven't been told this, like local banks and so on. So I'll put that up tonight. And then you've got uh, this one to do with prospective analysis on Canadian bankruptcy and insolvency law. And it's called Ending Too Big to Fail, TLAC and the Canadian Bail-In Regime. For those who didn't know that we had it in Canada, I've mentioned it many times before. Following the financial crisis, a number of reforms have been proposed, uh, both in Canada and internationally, aimed at limiting the risk of future taxpayer 
uh, funded bailouts for the largest financial institutions, which they call too-big-to-fail institutions, including proposals that will result in the imposition of new capital standards for such institutions. On the global front, the Financial Services Board announced September 25, 2015, at a meeting in London, that a draft agreement had been reached on a global standard for a new capital requirement that would be applicable to global systematically important banks. That's the GSIBs, <laughs> which is referred to as a total loss-absorbing capacity, TLAC. Now, it's all been signed, all this stuff. It says, earlier in 2014, that the FSB had issued a consultation policy proposal adequacy of loss-absorbing capacity of global systemically important banks in resolution. Remember, all your big banks, your big-name banks, have they're completely intertwined with other big banks across the world. That came out to 2008, remember, when the last crash happened, how they were loaning out to each other and borrowing from each other and all this other stuff to try to keep their uh, liquidity up, or at least on paper. Uh, so they aren't just your, your, your country's banks. Always remember that. It doesn't matter what name's on it, it's federal or whatever, or what flags on the outside. They're really international with all their investments and their borrowing and, and so on. It says there are currently 30 banks identified as GSIBs, this is for Canada, to whom the FSB proposal would apply, none of which are Canadian-based banks, this is. The TLAC requirements is expected to be formally implemented in 2019. That's a TLAC requirement. But in the meantime, they've already signed the bail-in agreement in all the countries, and again, you go into the archive section at cuttingthroughmates.com where I put all the links up before over the last uh, few years and given talks on once in a while. I don't like to talk about money much at all because it's not really my thing. And uh, it really doesn't... Uh, it really doesn't... Uh, it's not, money isn't my thing, really. If it was, I'd be doing something much, much bigger because I've got plenty of opportunities and always have had. So in the U.S., the Federal Reserve Board proposed October 30th, 2015, that TLAC requirements and long-term debt requirements be applicable to U.S. GSIBs and so on, and to the U.S. operations of non-U.S. GSIBs, which are identified by the Federal Reserve Board. So it's got a lot in that, too, for the U.S., because they're completely, they're completely interwoven now in the global society, you see. In Canada, the Canadian government had previously announced that it intends to implement the taxpayer protection and bank recapitalization regime, which is bail-in regime. That's what it says right here. Applicable to Canadian systemically important banks, the DSIBs. Proposal was initially issued in August 2014. It was actually mentioned before that because I've read the articles. And is discussed in further detail in prior legal updates. Budget 2015 Financial Institutions Update, awfully important for Canada. The Department of Finance releases proposals for Canadian bail-in regime. So it's, it's, it was released in 2015, and, it, and it's, it kicked in, I think, 1st of January this year, and so on. And it's really interesting. See that, yeah, it's, it's worse than Cyprus. Well, maybe it's the same, I don't know. But they can grab your, your uninsured money in your banks, you see, because you're only insured up to a certain amount. But there's so much, it's a long, long thing to read, done in legalese, naturally, uh, so that they can actually also bail out and bail, let the banks bail and grab your savings and all the rest of it. 
and keep doing it, keep grabbing more and more, regardless of the limit on it, if they say that they're still failing. I mean, it really is, it's just, nothing's ever simple in legalese. It's deliberately so, of course, naturally. And I'll put this up tonight as well. Now, Canada's much, much better than the U.S. and other countries to do with their media, being on board with government all the time, because they really do cover for government. They're all part of it by the big moguls own, the big media. And uh, you don't have many TV stations in Canada. Uh, so the ones that are there all know that if there's any information about government and economies and so on, the usual boring stuff, to, and guys who make their living on it every week, they'll turn up and listen to Parliament talking about this and that and the other. Uh, they wouldn't get in if they wrote a bad report, you see. Or if they let out to the public what was the public might scare the public. So they, they play the game. That's what's called playing the game. But here's an article here. It was back in 2012. Remember the bail-ins all happened. The bailouts all happened the last time when the public taxpayer to bail out the banks. Remember the guys at the top of these banks, the very, very top their headquarter guys, were giving themselves millions and millions of dollars in bonuses every year, things like that. And living like royalty, as they were screwing everything and putting out up. They created a bubble with the housing market and all the rest of it. Anyway, this is this says here, Canada's, Canada's biggest banks accepted tens of billions, tens of billion dollars. Uh, the, the, the Prime Minister at the time said... Uh, he said, oh, no, we didn't, we didn't have to bail out the banks and get healthy. It took four years before they came out and made the truth. The biggest banks received tens of billions in government funds during the recession. They call it recession. Uh, I love the terminology. According to a report released today by Canadian Bank Centre for Policy Alternatives, Canada's banking system is often lauded for being one of the world's safest. But an analyst by CCPA, senior economist David MacDonald, Conclude that Canada's major lenders were in a far worse position during the downturn. Downs were in a recession and a downturn than previously believed. He examined data provided by the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, Office of Superintendent of Financial Institutions, and big banks themselves for his report published Monday. Says support from Canadian banks from various agencies reached $114 billion at its peak. That works out to $3,400 for every man, woman, and child in Canada, and also to 7% of Canada's gross domestic product in 2009. The figure is also 10 times the amount of Canadian taxpayers spent on auto industry in 2009. At some point during the crisis, three of Canada's banks, the CIBC, it's the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, BMO, which is the Bank of Montreal, and Scotia Bank were completely underwater, completely underwater, with government support exceeding the market value of the company, MacDonald said. Without government support to fall back on, Canadian banks would have been in serious trouble, while the folk who banked with them would have been in even worse trouble. During October 2008 and June 2010, the banks combined to report $27 billion in profits on their balance sheets. It's, it's, it's all strategies, isn't it? And appearances. 
as his uh, CMHC mortgage program aided the banks. One of the most well-known ways in which policymakers helped the banks during the crisis is through a 69 million CMHC program whereby the housing agency took mortgages off the balance sheets of big Canadian banks, same as the states. In contrast with other support facilities, all of the funds granted by the CMHC were through selling assets, in this case mortgages, to the housing agency. They were not funds that had to be paid back. Not bad, eh? The CMHC has provided uh, the aggregate total of how much was given out, but has yet to release specifics on which banks sold how much to them and when, the CCPA says. When asked for comment and reaction to the CCPA report, the Canadian Bankers Association noted that the $69 billion that Canada big banks sold into the CMHC program is in fact only 55% of what was allocated for the program. Many of the mortgages were already insured and therefore created no additional risk for the government. The CBA noted in an email to CBC News, CMHC estimates that by the time the program is wound up, it'll have generated $2.5 billion in profit as those mortgages are paid off, the bankers group noted. Calling the CCPA report completely baseless, Department of Finance spokesman Chisholm Potier noted that the mortgage program had already generated more than $1.2 billion in net revenues for the CMHC's coffers. But Canadian lenders also dipped into a program set up by the U.S. Federal Reserve. There you go. It's completely it's NAFTA again. We're all one, you see. Uh, aimed at providing cash to keep American banks afloat. So they also got money from the U.S. CIBC and the bank, uh, the BMO, took almost $3 billion each out of the fund. RBC and TD, Toronto Dominion, took out $8 billion and Scotiabank drew down almost $12 billion, the CCPA report found. Uh, these funding measures were not put in place because banks were in financial difficulty. This says the Canadian Bankers Association. <laughs> well, they'll tell you the truth, eh? So anyway, the data came from the U.S. Federal Reserve, which released it uh, publicly. But McDonald's an- analysis found that Canadian banks got a comparable amount, such as $41 billion from Bank of Canada facilities, an agency that has been far less transparent in sharing information. Now, the Bank of Canada is our secretive it's not really a bank, but that's your secretive central bank, which really is a, a place where folk meets to borrow money from the big lenders, the ones that lend to nations. That's what it seems to be. Despite access to information requests for the data, the Bank of Canada refuses to release it. <laughs> We're here to serve the people. We serve the people. You know, your, government, your government tell you that. The politicians vote for us. You know, We're here to serve you. Despite access to information requests for the data, the bank kind of refuses to release it, and the federal government claims it was offering the banks. Now, here's where, how they get round. This is, I think it was Stephen Harper said, um, we didn't bail them out with your tax money. So, uh, but then it came out. The terminology they used was liquidity support, which is bailing them out. And it says that here, but it looks an awful lot like a bailout to me, says McDonald's. Well, that's what it is. You get them cash, you see. Whatever you call it, Canadian government aid for the country's biggest banks was far more indispensable 
than the official line would suggest. Amazing. It's just amazing. It really is. See, since the start of the recession, the the CBA notes... Four in 36 U.S. banks have failed. No Korean financial institutions went under. It's because we were bailed out. So there you go. You're going to laugh too because you see, well, Canada get as, didn't, didn't bail them out as much as some foreign governments, you know. I guess they're compared to the U.S. and so on. Well, look at the size of the U.S., the population compared to Canada to start with, you know. Oy, oy, oy. Anyway... I'll, I'll put this link up tonight, too. It's quite funny in a way. It's, it's tragic and funny, as always, but there you go. You know. After this one, I'll ask you to put a PDF up. It's called Big Banks, Big Secrets. Big Banks, Big Secrets. Awfully interesting. And you, you'll enjoy that, too. It's from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And... Uh, it is, it, is, it is really interesting. Now, also this article here. It's uh, Canada's bank bailout. Yes, there was one soon. Uh, same sort of thing. Uh, same article, basically. Uh, it says the debate over whether or not Canadian banks were bailed out has turned into a game of he said, she said. On one side, the progressive Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives arguing the Canadian banks found themselves in serious trouble during the crisis. And it was larger than the U.S.'s, technically, for a population, uh, $114 billion in emergency lending and in cash injections at the bailout's peak. Another side, you the Canadian Bankers Association, the private ones, and the Harper government, who argued that, that there, was, there wasn't a bailout. No, it was giving them liquidity. <laughs> I'll put that up, too. Now, the, the farce is going on right now... Uh, with the World Economic Forum at Davos, of course, or Davos, uh, which, if you say it backwards, it's for the few, <laughs> for the holy rich, right? But it says, a Swiss non-profit foundation based in Cologne, Geneva, and so on, recognized by the Swiss authorities as the International Institution for Public-Private Cooperation. Everything's public-private now. It's, they call it partnerships, where the public pay for all big infrastructure and everything and roads and all that, and then your government gets it to a private company that then puts tolls on it and, and owns it. Not bad deal, eh? But so that's what they call public-private partnerships. And it tells you all about them, what they do and so on, how long they've been meeting uh, uh, and all the rest of it, the top business leaders, etc., etc., etc. And then some highlights from the World Economic Forum and, and Davos as well. And it says uh, it's a 46th annual meeting of the few, I call it the few, in Davis, Switzerland, has attracted over 2,500 leaders from the business space, government officials, international organizations, civil society groups, that's all the NGOs, that uh, the armies that are paid by the foundations to lobby the governments on behalf of the, of the, the corporations that own the foundations. Members of academia, of course, are all on board with it, and the media to discuss issues around the theme of mastering the fourth industrial revolution. What? What planet are they on? Right? And they're going to all that rubbish about, oh, the next one's going to be uh, robots and stuff. That's all we need now is fewer folk working. Eh? Not bad, eh? And I'll put this rubbish up too, because that's not, that's not what they're really, really talking about at all. It always takes ages before they come out with anything. 
that really, really matters. And fire up another PDF up to do with um, the Global Risks Report 2016 from the World Economic Forum. It's awfully good again. It gives you, forget all the rubbish about the, all the celebrities that are there and all that nonsense and talking about robots. You might find out what they're really talking about, global risks, etc. And some of the highlights and so on, um, you know, you read for yourself. They even have the, the talking about the Paris Climate Accord and all the rest of it, etc. But it says, the ongoing 46 annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davis, Switzerland, 2,500 leaders and so on. It says, the Nigerian Vice President Yemi Osinbajo is the country's representative at this year's World Economic Forum. They tell you more about it from this this, this country than they do in your own countries, you know, where it's all just fun and games. And it says, the fall in global oil prices, that's what's happening right now. For those who can remember, remember the ones where we'd pass peak oil back, it was back in the 70s. You know, in Britain, they, they give you, everybody who had a vehicle, even a motorbike and a moped, was issued a government ration card for gasoline. It was going to be the end of everything. We're just running out of oil. It's nonsense. The Arabs were holding it back. It's a protest of uh, the West's support for Israel and so on. That's what it was about. But they played that up for years and years and years. All run out of oil, run out of oil. Get electric cars, etc. And uh, here we have the the biggest glut of of oil on the planet. And the US has turned into the biggest importer to the biggest exporter of oil because of all the fracking that they're doing. Anyway, the following global oil prices, as the price of oil in the global market fell below $30 in the last month, Nigeria's petroleum minister called for an emergency meeting of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, which is OPEC, to curb the prices from crashing any further, with Iran's plant to supply 500,000 barrels a day now coming to the market, you see. And they're going about Saudi Arabia, maintained its stance on remaining the world's second largest producer of oil, and as a result of this, a hugely oversupplied market is expected. Then it goes on about the Paris Climate Accord. The disruption of the Earth's climate system was evident in the El Nino weather pattern last year, which is associated with a sustained period of warming in the central and eastern uh, tropical Pacific. <laughs> it tends to do that. And the ability to spark deadly and costly climate extremes. Speaking at the World Economic Forum, the United Nations General Secretary Ban Ki-moon warned that economic development around the world would be undermined if the agreed targets, that's the money we're all going to pay now to the United Nations uh, and so on, if, if uh, they've all agreed to do it, of course, in carbon taxes, you name it, blah, 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 all these con games, if we don't meet the, the targets. Climate change undermines development gains, he says. With no money, we're broke anyway and we can't play for anything, right? China's impact on the global market too, it says. This is a bad note for the global economy. China recorded its slowest pace of economic growth in a quarter century. They were vastly overextended, but given out loans, more and more bonds than they actually could, they were valid for, way more. You know. China's the European Union's second largest trading partner, accounting for, accounting for 10% of its exports according to official figures. China's stock market plunged, shedding nearly half its value since June. Now, the, the big uh, Federal Reserve in the U.S. and other ones too, uh, to do back and getting back to the bailout, the last bailout, uh, 
really pledged so much and took a lot of money, uh, you know, on, on credit from China. Now China's gone under, you see. Currently, China accounts for 15% of global output and the effects of its economy downturn will be reverberated around the world. And I wonder if it will even uh, be, be likely to return or not. And uh, I'll put this article up tonight too, because I say this, this, at least this article doesn't go into all the celebrities that are there. No, and he's a fancy robot that can say hello, you know, night, night, and all that nonsense. And then also put up uh, a recap of day three at Davos as well. For those who want to remember, this is the world. Everything is international now, so you got to understand this is for the whole world. Everything affects every other country today. We all sign the same international treaties, and we're all under the same World Bank Authority and that international IMF authority, and the Bank for International Settlements Authority. All, all private institutions, all one club actually, set up by another private club, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, a long time ago. And uh, it's got a human capital report, this one. And uh, impact of digital content, opportunities and risk of creating and sharing information online. There's no security online, folks. Not for you. you And strengthening the global trade investment system in the 21st century. A lot of faith and hope there. And uh, Japan Gender Parity Task Force. (laughs) And so on. Recap of day three. It says, we're not the prisoners of a predetermined future, John Kerry said at Davis Thursday. As world leaders discuss just what the future should look like, from the fallout of the fourth industrial revolution in Mexico to feminism at work in the fault lines running through the Eurozone. It says, in a special address, the U.S. Vice President outlined three main challenges facing the world 2016. Good governance, that's international speak, you see, because you're not governed anymore for your government, it's international. Good governance, opportunities for young people, I wonder who they'll be, and winning the campaign against exploiters, liars, and criminals. <laughs> aye, aye. Uh, Vice President Kerry said that important steps had been taken in bringing together governments in the Middle East and agreeing the steps to put an end to conflict in Syria. It says the work of many may be changing, but some problems stay the same. It's mainly about women and gender equality and so on. It's talk, you're talking about, really. Uh, it says here, two Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau explained the work that went into unveiling the world's first 50 to 50 percent, no, it was 50 percent, gender-based cabinet, 50-50, when he took power last year. He had to overcome women's reluctance to put themselves forwards, launching a grassroots campaign uh, uh, called... Uh, some about ask her to run an even resorting to arm twisting. So you have to be in a gender uh, choice thing. Uh, you see, he basically wanted them in the cabinet. Trudeau's politics had a personal dimension, and it's his. Uh, <laughs> he described how his wife took him to one one side and encouraged him to take as much effort to talk to his sons about how they treat women and how they're going to grow up to be feminists just like dad. So anyway, uh, when people start, I'm telling you, and I've seen this in, in different countries, 
going forward to get into politics, and then they'll say they've come out to the closet and all that. If you vote them in for that reason, you deserve everything you get. If you're voting folk in, folks, it should be what they can do. Can they do the job? Nothing to do with your gender or, your, or, 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 or what preferences you have or anything else. It's to do, can they do the darn job? Will they concentrate on the job? Are they fit to run for that job? Are they qualified, in other words? Otherwise, it's just chaos. It's chaos. So this should not be used as a qualification to get into any kind of very important position where where millions of folk are, are, could be affected by decisions you make on the particular area they put you into. To lord over, you know. Surely that's true. Surely that's true. Surely, surely that is true, folks. Common sense. Folk used to, they never mentioned what they did in the bedroom or what they fancied. I mean, that just wasn't part of it. And it should be part of it today. Especially with the mess we're in, with the finances and debt and everything else going crazy. I mean, what good is it to anybody? To anybody? Regardless of your preferences, if you're all dirt broke and your country goes down the tubes, what's that got to do with it? Politics. But anyway, that's the way it is today. That's why, too, the Club of Rome, the big, big think tank for the United Nations and the big foundations, came up with the idea that they'd blame the public for climate change and all the rest of it, and so man would be the enemy, and that's why they came out with Agenda 21 and now expanded. But it's still Agenda 21 for the whole century, folks. I mean, 2030 and all that. It's the same agenda. And, uh, and depopulation gradually and all the rest of it. That's why that came out, you know. So, and they said, too, they said that democracy would work. Because there's too many factions now all fighting with each other. Again, with all these subdivisions of categories of humanity and all the rest of it. All fighting for what they want. Instead of just looking at the whole majority and saying, here's the priorities, this comes first. If there's anything left over and there's time, and we might talk about all the rest of it. But first of all comes, can we stay solvent? Can we keep work going? Can we keep employment for people? And your basic health and care and all the rest of it. That's what's important. Then you can fight over and, 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 and kill each other over any kind of other differences you want. And unfortunately, folk actually do, don't they? Ay, ay. But anyway, I'll put these articles up tonight. Also, uh, Swiss soldiers sent home from Davos for using cocaine. Well, it's flooding all over the place because the welfare there, you see. And so they'll get a little bit on the side too, given by the, the top masters that, that they're guarding, no doubt, and keep them safe. So anyway, they tested positive for cannabis, and five were also found with traces of cocaine. Mind you, that stuff, the, the cannabis will, will flow so widely there, folks. Uh, all these big world things are the same. And no one gets arrested except just the soldiers and guys on the sidelines. You could get stoned just breathing the stuff in, in the same rooms. You don't have to actually go ahead and smoke the stuff. You're breathing it in. So I'll put this up tonight too, and 
Monsanto pressures the World Health Organization. Here's a, here it comes. And California not to list glyphosate as a carcinogen. It's a key ingredient in Monsanto's branded Roundup line of herbicides as well as hundreds of other products. But many scientific studies have raised questions about the health impacts of glyphosate and consumer medical groups have expressed worries about glyphosate residues in food. It's cancer-causing. And I've known it from the beginning, folks. We've done articles over many years on this stuff. I'll put this up tonight as well. And then Monsanto sues to prevent California. Again, another article on uh, listing the glyphosate as a carcinogen. So now they're suing. The company that's given you all this cancer has got a massive monopoly in food across the world. Uh, uh, basically, it has all their farmers at their mercy on their products um, and giving you cancers, etc. Are suing, you see. I'll put that up tonight as well. Hate to run through all this stuff, folks, but, you know, there's a lot to go through and that's just how I had to do it. It's important that you think for yourselves. I've always said that. Don't... Don't wait for some big wig to tell you what to do. You have to think for yourselves to try and do the little you can for yourself in these times. Yourself, that's all you that's all you can manage, you know. Yourself. Do what you can for your own self and your family's self. Or your friend's self, you know, folk around you. Because it's, don't look for a handout anywhere, you know, from the big boys. It ain't going to come. They help themselves first in times of trouble at the top. And you must make your own decisions. Don't, don't wait on the sidelines until you're crushed. Take the little bit of responsibility you do for yourself. Even if it's not much. From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God, your gods, go with you.